welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, episode 52, I believe. If you have a question you would like to ask, and you can comment, you can uh, submit it to the comment section below, put the word question in front of it, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and comment in the comment section, and we'll get to it as the questions come in. <clears throat> our desire is to look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Uh, Rather than being on an I'm right quest, we are on a truth quest. We want to know what God's word says and how we are supposed to live. Our first question today has to do with Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 is an amazing prophecy, but the chapter is even more amazing. And it has to do with the restoration of the nation Israel. The land in Israel has been restored. The people have been restored to the land. Jesus said that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, they are in control since 1967. We are the first generation since 70 AD when Israel was destroyed by the Romans, by Titus, the son of Vespasian, the future emperor, to have the nation of Israel. And the Bible foretells Israel in the last days. During the church age, before Israel became a nation in 1948, and before that, people tried to figure out what to do with all these passages that talked about Israel being restored. They came up with replacement theology, that they would replace the nation of Israel with the church, that God uh, took away, divorced Israel, took away um, his promises, and then fulfilled them to the church. But God said to Israel, I will never forget you, my people. I've carved you on the palms of my hands. And even if a mother forgets the child in her womb, I will never forget you. One of the last things to be restored is spirituality. Israel returns to God. Romans 11.26 says that when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, all of Israel will be saved. God's going to restore them. They're going to receive the Antichrist and they're going to follow him. When he turns against them, they will turn back to the nation, excuse me, the nation of Israel will turn back to the Lord. I want to bring up uh, the passage here, but I want to show you a couple of things before we get into it. I thought we would start just with the beginning of Zechariah 12. So this whole, just listen to what it says and we can break it down from there. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth. Just in case you're wondering who the Lord is. The word for Lord there is the tetragrammaton. It's the Y-H-W-H. In other words, you could read it, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says Yahweh, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him. It goes on to say, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. So he's talking about the last days. And he goes on to talk about how these nations that surround Israel will be destroyed by God. It's like Ezekiel 36 through 39 or so. Now, I want to jump ahead and I want to go to verse 7. And I want you to see it's still the Lord talking. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than those of Judah. Now we get down to verse 10 and look at verse 9. 
9 says, it shall be in that day that I, still Yahweh talking, it will surely be in that day that I will seek to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now here's our prophecy. It says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. This is when armies are surrounding Israel, when they are being attacked from all sides and God fights for them and he will pour a spirit of mercy and grace out on Jerusalem. It says, then they will look upon me whom they pierced. My question is, who is the me here? It's God, it's Yahweh. When did they pierce Yahweh in Jerusalem? Here we have another passage like Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born and he will be called mighty God. Like Isaiah 7, 14, God with us, Emmanuel. Like, is it Micah 5, 2, uh, that you Bethlehem, out of you will come one who will rule my people. His days are from everlasting. Here's another one. I will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy upon them and they will look upon me whom they pierce. This is the Old Testament, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the Old Testament that is, that is giving us a look at the complexity of God in, in Jesus coming in the incarnation. And it says, and yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. So the amazingness of this prophecy is that in a date yet future to us, like Romans eleven twenty six, when all of Israel will be saved, that is spiritually God is going to pour out a spirit of mercy and grace upon Jerusalem. And we should keep our eyes on Israel and realize that we are living during the days that these promises have been given to the nation of Israel. And we want, the, the world is rapidly fulfilling prophecies. The, the Bible says, uh, I think it's Matthew 24, 12, that in the last days lawlessness will abound. It says the love of many will grow cold. I think we're living in those days. Lawlessness is abounding and the love of many <clears throat> are growing cold. Uh, also, uh, you have Israel becoming a nation again, the Jews back to Jerusalem. Jesus said in Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And Jesus said, when you see all of these things happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh. That all of these things, the earthquakes, the raging of the sea, the pestilences, uh, all of them, the gospel being preached to all nations. Look up because your redemption draws nigh. And I believe that we are very close to the end and we are living in the last days. So it is good to see you guys. Nice to have you joining us here today. If you have a question, you can write the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of it. Read it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit that question. Uh, let me go ahead and get back to our uh, let's see what I got here. Let's get back to the main scene here. <clears throat> and um, we have our first question from Jari. Jari says, how do we apply God's the same yesterday and today and forever <clears throat> in its context? Um, I'm trying to think, Jari, where that passage is at. It would be great for us to be able to take a look at the context. Uh, let me just see if I can find it really quick. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Scripture. All right, so it's Hebrews 13, 6 through, through 8, I think. Um, yeah, let me, let me go look there. Hebrews 13, 6 through 8. Let me see if I can find this. 
Hebrews, oops, Hebrews 13, 6 through 8. All right, let me go ahead and just see if I can look for this here. Hebrews 13, 6 through 8. If you want me to do it in context, maybe we should add the reference. I can find it a little bit quicker. Um, let's see if this is it. Remember those who rule over you? No. No, that's not it. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where it's at. All right, um, Jari. So I can't really speak to the context just because I'm not, I don't remember off the top of my head what the context is. If you want to resubmit the question here in a little while um, and put the context in there, I'll look it up and we can look at the context together. But what it says telling us about God is that he is unchanging. That God is not all of a sudden going to become a different person. Sometimes people marry someone and a few years later, they're a different person than they were when they got married because of whatever struggles or addictions or problems, or they might change. They might be not a Christian and become a Christian, but God will never change. The promises that he gave and the character that he showed is the character that he's always going to have. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you can trust in him. Imagine if we didn't know if, God, if, if the Bible said that God is changing. And we didn't know whether God was going to keep all of his promises. If God has been faithful in the past, God will be faithful in the future. If God has been faithful to you in the past, then God will be faithful to you in the future. And this is a great promise for us. And it gives us great confidence that I can surrender my life to him now. And the things that he said uh, will remain. They will not return back void. Uh, they will accomplish the very things that God sent out for them to accomplish. And God's not going to change his character. I can trust him. For example, he has always responded to humility. Even when Ahab, the wicked king, repented, at least had some kind of show of humility, God even honored that among Ahab. And if God honors it among someone like Ahab, then God will honor that humility with you as well. All right, so um, we can take a look at that in context uh, a little bit later on. Um, we have another question from, uh, from Jari. Let me see a question. Uh, the rhema word biblically or the sola scriptura, can God show me something new as I get in his presence and read the book of Revelation? Um, there's a lot that we don't know, Jari. The, the Bible tells us that the secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. There have been people pouring into scripture for 2000 years now. We certainly have a better understanding today because we can take the whole Bible in its context. We can, we, we have it, you know, a lot of it put to memory and we can understand it a whole lot better. Uh, and so, um, Am I going to go and seek God out on my own and ask him to reveal something to me? Um, and I'm trying to think if there's any scripture that would encourage you to do that, um, to, to find something new. The Bible talks about a new song. But we know, for example, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul said, if anybody comes to you teaching you anything that is new, then let him be accursed. I like what Greg Laurie says, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And that means that we want to always be able to find something back to back it in scripture. Could God speak something personally to you 
about someone else or about yourself? Could God reveal something to you? Yes, certainly. But I don't know. Um, the Bible is so full of information and the more I study it, the richer I find it to be. And so I don't know that I would be looking for God to reveal something new to me that's not in scripture. Instead, I would want to find out, I'd want to study the scripture. I want to know what the Bible says. Um, being one who's taught through books of the Bible several times, I can tell you that each time I get done with the book, I find it richer than the time I did before, and I find myself wanting to study it right away because there's so much more that's in there. My advice, Jari, would be to study God's Word. To, God's Word is alive and active. You, you can make mistakes. So if God speaks directly to you, you might think you heard from God, but didn't hear from him. That's not judgment. That's just, I'm not judging you, Jari. I'm just saying that's, that's who we are. Sometimes we are so sure that God spoke to us when God had not spoken to us at all. And that's why when you seek God and you say, well, I was praying and God showed me this and people say that with a great confidence, I'm always like, uh, man, I, what, what I like to say, if God speaks to me and it's something, it's not out of scripture, I like to say, I believe God spoke to me. And that leaves room for those who are hearing to judge it. So if I'm teaching a message and I say, you know, I was praying the other night and I believe God spoke this to me, then people can go, mm, I don't think he heard from God. He believes he did. But I'm leaving room for what I believe to be different than scripture. You never wanna, you would never wanna base what you believe on something revealed to you alone. You wanna base it on scripture. You don't wanna take what you've heard from God and put it as high up as scripture because you could be mistaken. Peter, when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't show you this. And then Jesus went on to talk about his death and Peter took him aside and Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. Because he thought he heard, and he did hear from God that Jesus was the Messiah. But a little bit later on, he was listening to the enemy instead, the devil, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So the only, the only thing that we have that we know is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, is the word of God. Sola Scriptura, total Scriptura. And when there is a personal revelation, if God speaks to me in that, that's okay. I can get it, but I've got to give it, I got to give it a grain of salt because I can make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes, but I can make mistakes. I can think God spoke to me when God didn't speak to me. That's why when you're making decisions, you want to prayerfully make decisions. And even if you don't hear anything from God, then you prayerfully make a decision and you move forward knowing that God can correct you if you are prayerfully making those decisions. And that's a great deal of humility that God gives to us as, as we take his word, all right? So, um, there, yeah, there's a couple different words in the Bible for, for scripture, for the word, and um, I think that the, high, the, the word of God is the written word. That's the highest authority that we have. And we want to make sure that that's what we are following. And that's, uh, that's what we are living. All right. So we have a question from Adrian. Adrian joins us from Facebook. Adrian says, hi, Pastor Robert. Matthew 1240, Jesus says, 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Is the heart of the earth the same place as Abraham's bosom? Luke 16, 22. Is this place still in existence? Is hell a different place? Thank you and God bless you. Thank you, Adrian. I appreciate uh, your question. So there's a couple of different things that you're asking here. As Jesus said, as Jonah was in um, uh, three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he's talking about the grave. He's not talking about him dying and spending three days in the heart of the earth. We know that. On the morning Jesus arose, he saw Mary Magdalene. He saw Peter. He appeared to the women that came to the tomb. And then he said to Mary, I've got to ascend up to my father. I believe that the, the Ark of the Covenant was a type of the mercy seat in heaven. And Jesus had to go sprinkle his own blood on the mercy seat that the Ark of the Covenant was a shadow of and that he was going to ascend up to his father. Then he met the, um, after the resurrection, he met the, 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 some of the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. We also know the Bible says he went and preached to spirits that were in prison. So it seems that he did descend. And we believe from Ephesians that Jesus descended. Who is he who descended, but it's first, or who is he ascended, but he who first descended and then brought a host of captives out of captivity. And we believe that to be Abraham's comfort. At least that's my understanding of it that Jesus went and took all of the people that were in this capsule-like a place, Sheol, uh, in Luke 16, 22, Jesus tells this parable or he tells this account, the rich man is in torment and Lazarus is comforted with Abraham. Is this, um, is this the same place as hell? No, because this is how death and Hades are eventually going to be thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell in the book of Revelation. This is an intermediate state. And what we mean by an intermediate state, it's the place that you go when you die before you are resurrected and everyone will be resurrected. You have those who are resurrected to life and, and, and that would be Jesus, that would be the rapture, that would be those that go through the tribulation period. That's the first resurrection. Then you have the second resurrection, which interestingly enough is not called the second resurrection in the Bible, but it's called the second death. And everyone who was resurrected in the second death stands before God and is judged and is judged to be wanting because God's judging their own lives. So I hope uh, that's helpful. Adrian, a um, couple of just uh, different things here. Jesus is talking about the heart of the earth. And um, I thought your question, first of all, was going to be about the number of days that Jesus, his body was in the grave, because that's what he's talking about when he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. All right, thank you very much. Um, let's go ahead and uh, look for our next question here. We have a question from Matt Grossman. Good to see you, Matt. Matt says, um, question, recently a bill in Canada passed, the C4 bill that makes it illegal to provide uh, conversion therapy to someone who is a homosexual, transsexual, etc. They define conversion therapy as anything with the intent of changing someone's sexual orientation. To me, that would include witnessing to a gay person. 
how should a Canadian Christian respond to this new law and how should we if this law eventually crosses the border? All right, thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. The disciples in Acts, I think it was chapter four, are arrested and told that you will be flogged, openly flogged, if you continue to preach in the name of Jesus. The response of the disciples was, should we obey God or man? And it says that they went back, got in the upper room, and they prayed. And when they prayed, they prayed this prayer. Lord, you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. I think that's, a, that's focusing in on God. God's the creator. There's no problem that's too big on in him. That's not no problem that's too big for him. And so when we pray, I think we should get the right focus on who God is and what God's all about. And so he says, um, uh, you created the heavens and the earth. Now God, consider their threats and give us boldness. And the Bible says the room that they were in was shaken and God filled them or the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were given boldness. So it, that's an interesting prayer to me because I probably would have prayed, Lord, don't let me get beat up. They didn't pray that. They prayed despite the circumstances, give us boldness. And I think that's the case here. When we're talking to someone uh, who is, is a homosexual, or a, a transsexual, then um, we share Christ with them. And we tell them that this is a, a sinful behavior. It's not something that people were born with. I'm not saying that someone, that, that a man can't be born with a proclivity to be more, more feminine because I think that happens. We even have um, children who are, who are born hermaphrodites. Um, and so I'm not saying that can't happen, but I'm saying that acting on your sexual desires is where the sin is, whatever, whatever those sexual desires are. That's where the sin is. Um, I do believe we have to take our thoughts captive. And as we share with them, um, you would have to obey God and tell them the way to salvation. You'd have to tell them that they're living in something that is indeed sinful. And so, um, yeah, I think that we would have to respond the same way that they responded, Matt. And we may very well, I mean, we're living in, in the last days. I think we are. And we may very well uh, have consequences from preaching the gospel. And pastors in certain laws that are being passed in California and in other places uh, that have really liberal laws, uh, it could be construed that it's illegal to preach against homosexuality. And the question is, when we come to it in the Bible, are we going to obey God or are we going to obey man? And of course, we need to obey God. And that should always be the case, by the way. We obey God. We obey the law until the law makes us a bad Christian, until God's word and the law fight against each other. And then we do what the Bible says, not not what what they say. So yeah, there may come a time when there are some laws that go against us and sharing our faith brings persecution. But remember, uh, Jesus said that as well. Uh, I think I've got another question here. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. I'm going to bring this in. Uh, so looks like it is. Um, remember that you want to put the word question in front of uh, uh, your question so that in the comment section, I can easily identify it. I might skip over it if I don't see a question mark or a Q in front of it. What do you tell the person who argues that nudity is 
uh, uh, in different mediums such as garden sculptures and anime isn't wrong uh, to dwell on since it's not real. I remember years ago you saying the scriptures were just, um, the oh, sculptures were just ancient porn. I've shared that um, many times. Uh, yeah, so modesty in the Greek world and in the Roman world was a whole lot different than what's in Israel. There um, were in the Old Testament, there were groves of trees where they carved uh, figures and people in sex acts into the trees. And that was the pornography of their day. And it was a place that they would go to worship false gods. And I, you know, I've been to Rome, I've been uh, to Italy, um, I've been in Florence where you go and you, you walk in and you look at these uh, sculptures and you do have to guard your heart uh, and just make sure that you're looking at things in as pure a way as you possibly can. And um, I, we, want, we want to have modesty as, as much as possible with us and um, nudity in art is accepted to some degree and we, when we are exposed to it, we just need to keep ourselves, our, our thoughts, process, right and proper. And um, if you are tempted by it, then get away from it. And I think that that really is maybe part of what you really need to look at. How tempted are you when something like that is there? And how often do you see it? Someone that lives in some place like Florence might see it much more often than when you see it here because there's statues everywhere in Florence than with what you would see here in the United States. All right, so thank you, Beth, and good to see you, by the way, um, for that question. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm looking for another question now. Like I said, if you have a question, then just write the word question down first um, because there's a lot of things going on here. Uh, in the comment sections, I got to be able to identify it. We have a question here from Travis. Travis says, does the fact that the vaccine uses aborted fetal cells bug you? Uh, yes. The fact that um, the medical community in general uses fetal cells bugs me. And the argument goes that back in the 70s, there were some some babies that had been aborted, the fetal cells were grown from them to create the cells that are used in, text, in testing all kinds of medical things. Um, I, the reason that I take the vac or took the vaccine is because I determined that no babies were killed in order to test the vaccine. So that was the line that I've drawn. Now, some people aren't gonna like that. They're gonna respond in a negative way to me for that, and I understand it. We have to live our convictions. And as far as I understand it, babies today are not, they are not using aborted fetuses and they're not aborting, certainly not aborting babies to be able to use their cells. I think that this is an abomination to God. I think God's heart is broken over, over this. I think the innocent are dying. I think human life is being cheapened. Uh, the Bible, when God in the law talked about a life for a life, he said, because man was created in the image of God. 
taking a human life is taking someone who's built in the image of God and there's something particularly evil about that. And if you're watching this and you've had an abortion or you encourage someone to get an abortion, I want you to know that God's forgiveness is absolutely tremendous and he will forgive you completely and totally. Um, but that was my thought process um, when I went and looked at this, that they are, and, and, and if you're gonna reject, Travis, if you're gonna reject the vaccine, there's a lot of other medical things that you're gonna have to reject as well. So you've gotta make that decision. Am I going to reject this because they use the cells of a baby that has been aborted? Certainly there would be a much greater problem if babies were being aborted in order to get the cells to be able to do tests. But as far as I understand it, and I realize there are people who will say that this is not true, but as far as I understand it, the fetal cells are, are being grown from cells that were collected way back in the 70s. I don't know that that makes it any better, uh, but um, I did hear someone argue that some good is coming out of an abortion if the cells are used to be able to further science. Um, I would, I'm not sure that I would argue that. I would instead say, you know, God can make good come out of anything, right? So God could make good come out of a baby being aborted because that's God. God can do that. That's not saying that it was right. That's not saying that it wasn't killing someone that was made in the image of God because it definitely is. And it should be heartbreaking to us. So thank you very much, Travis, for your question. Hopefully that is helpful. We have another question from Barbara. Barbara joins us from Facebook. We have people who are joining us from Facebook and from YouTube. Barbara says, question, and thank you for that. Uh, Pastor Robert, I'm reading Leviticus and started to wonder about the laws regarding animal sacrifices. Since Jesus became our sacrifice, so we no longer need animal sacrifices, wondering about Jewish people who don't believe in the G uh, Jesus as the Messiah. How are their sins forgiven without animal sacrifices? Well, since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there is no place to give temple sacrifices today. And so Jews had to come up with an idea of how they could deal with their sins. And as far as I understand, and as far as I've researched and looked into, they believe that they need to outdo their bad by good things. So they just kind of come to that point where they say, we just believe that we're just trying to be as good as we possibly can and the sins that we commit will end up being forgiven because they, they, there's more of them for that. Um, sacrifices will be reinstituted. The, the, the Bible tells us that the temple will be rebuilt, that sacrifices will be given again. They'll be given as a memorial in Israel during the, the millennium period. So, um, yeah, they, in, in the Old Testament, I, I think that the temple had to be destroyed. I think Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed and it's talking about all these problems with these people who are living for Christ but wanting to go back to the temple and then the temple was destroyed and now there, there was no way to go and give sacrifices. I think people would still give them today if they could. If the temple was still around, I think they, they would still do it today. The Judaizers in the days of the Bible tried to make Christians obey the things that they found, um, tried to make people obey the Torah, the law, get circumcised, but the Bible tells us that we are free 
and not to let anybody put us under the law or to judge us when it comes to new moons or Sabbaths or any of those kind of things. So the only way that you can be saved is by being born again. And that's for for Jewish people who have a love for Yahweh. They need to receive Jesus as their Messiah because Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him and follow after him. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, Let's go ahead and, and get another question here. So we have a question from Rick. Uh, Rick says, question, there is a small group of Christians who think that the church should meet in homes, not buildings. They say there is no evidence the church meetings in buildings is in the New Testament. Um, What is a good response to that? I think that that's wrong. The early church met in Solomon's porch and had larger meetings there. They also met from home to home. There was also the school of Tyrannius, which is in Ephesus, which they taught there. Uh, They also met in wealthier persons' homes, which were larger and could handle a large number of people. And so the argument is that somehow a church that is larger is not as effective as a church that is smaller. I think there's benefits to a smaller church. I think there's benefits to going to a church that is in someone's home. You get to know people really well. You're going to know the people who are there really well. There's accountability that's there. Um, I also think there's benefits of a larger church, like like the one that I pastor. The Bible never says the size of the church matters. And if the church gets above a certain size, it doesn't matter. Um, the Bible's really good at giving us direction. And if having going to a larger church was a problem, there would be something that would say, make sure that you go to a home fellowship. Um, I have no problems. People are free to do what they want to do. We have great freedom in Christ. And if you want to go to a home fellowship as a church, um, as a church I have no problem with that. I think it's a good thing. I think God can use it. God can bless people um, out of it, uh, out of you know a, a smaller church. But I also believe that God can bless people out of a larger church as well. And there's nothing biblical that would restrict it. And if you want to start arguing from silence, well, you don't find a larger church in the Bible. What else don't you find in the Bible? It's kind of a slippery slope. You could start saying things like, and churches do, Well, you don't find any instruments used in the New Testament. So the Church of Christ doesn't use any instruments because you don't find any instruments within the Bible. And, you know, we could go on. There's no cars in the Bible, so should you drive your car? I'm getting a little silly here. I realize that. But you don't base your activity upon an argument of silence. You base it on what the Bible says. And if the Bible doesn't give you sufficient information on it, then you want to apply some other things. Is it modest? Is it corrupt? Is it, am I doing something that God would not approve of? And if all of those things can be answered that they're not, then I think that we have the freedom to be able to do it. And we use our freedom for our edification, our freedom for people to grow in Christ, but we have freedom to be able to meet in a smaller church or a larger church. So that would be my response that the Bible never gives direction and that the early church did meet in the temple and have larger meetings in the beginning. Uh, It just so happened that there were smaller groups that were meeting and the places they found to meet was in people's houses, but Paul did meet in in a school in Ephesus. 
All right. And we have no idea how big his daily meetings were. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that. So uh, I'm going to get another question here. Um, I'm going to go to a question that we have prepared. If you have a question, just write the word question and then write your, your question out. Reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it. I'm going to go to a second prepared question that we have. Can you explain the process of salvation or being born again? This was previously submitted uh, to the podcast. Um, so what I think that the person who asked this question is looking for is what happens inside of us when we are born again? What is the, what is the process of it happening? We do know that we have to be saved. Jesus said, you must be born again. And if we call out upon the name of the Lord, that we will be saved. And we know it's by faith and not by works, lest anyone should, should boast. And the Bible tells us clearly that we are not saved by any kind of works that are out there. And so it's by faith and faith alone. Uh, so we're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by sacraments. We're not saved by taking communion. We're not saved by witnessing. We're not saved by going to church. We are saved when we, when we believe in him. Now, you could believe in him by receiving him. That's what it says in John 1.12, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. And when that happens, there's a transformation. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. God forgives your sin. He gives you a fresh start. You are born again into the family of God. You are made a child of God. There are so many things that happen at the moment that you are born again. You are given eternity and you begin to live for him. What an absolutely amazing thing. Now, Jesus said you must be born again. You interact with this world because you were born. You were born in the flesh and now you interact with this world and you interact with the spiritual world and you interact with God by being born again. And when you are born again, your spirit is now quickened to life and you now interact in the spiritual realm. So God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And if you've never committed your life to Christ, if you've never said, Lord, I invite you in, I wanna live for you, I wanna live for you wholeheartedly, um, God's looking for that invitation. I also believe that salvation is a process of us asking Christ in and Christ drawing us. So God's at work. God and the Bible teaches that no one comes to the Son unless the Father first draws him. So in salvation, God is drawing us and then we respond to that and we invite him in. And if we invite him in, we receive him, we become child of God, ch ch children of God, and there is a real transformation uh, that takes place uh, within our lives. So hopefully um, that is what you were looking for is what is the process of salvation or being born again. Uh, it is the process by which we gain eternity. It's the process by which God does uh, these kind of things in our lives. So uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, really glad you're here. Hope that you are really blessed. If you have any questions, write the word question in front of your question, then write out your question, reread it, and then go ahead and submit it. And we'll get to it in the order uh, that it has been given. All right. Uh, I have another question here that was prepared um, from a, it was submitted previously. And um, this is, 
do you have to be baptized in order to be saved? And specifically, they were considering 1 Peter 3, 21. So let me go ahead and pull that up. 1 Peter 3, 21, and you'll see what it says here right away. Let me get there, 15 and uh, 21. So let me go ahead and put this on the screen for you and we'll read it here and then we'll talk about baptism in the light of what this passage says. All right, so um, it says here in verse 21, there is also an antitype which um, now saves us baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer to a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So people read this as if it's saying that baptism is the one that saves us. It doesn't say baptism saves us. And there are people in the Bible who were saved before they were baptized. And there's many examples of them, like Cornelius, when Peter goes to preach at his house, I think it's Acts chapter 10, as he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues and magnify God and they are born again. And so Paul says, what should I do? And, and so Paul, he, he, he baptizes them and enters them into the family. And they are used in Acts chapter 15 when they're dealing with this issue of whether or not um, Gentiles have to be baptized or what exactly, or, or have to be circumcised or what exactly has to happen to them. So yes, we are baptized, but it's the anti-type which saves us. Baptism is a type of Jesus's death and resurrection. It is a type of me aligning myself with the burial and resurrection of Jesus so that baptism then is the, the, the anti-type of baptism saves us. What's the anti-type? Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and being resurrected. So read it again there. There is also an anti-type which now saves us. Then it says baptism. Baptism is the, is the type, the anti-type is Jesus living and dying upon the cross. And so the Bible tells us clearly in several places that we are saved by God's grace, not of works. And I know that James says, um, faith alone can't save you, but works as well. And then he says, you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Again, he's not saying that we have to work in order to be saved. He's, he's saying that works will follow, that when you make a commitment to Christ, you're gonna be changed. There's gonna be fruit that's going to change. And so works can't save you, but because you are genuinely saved, you now wanna do what God wants you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. And so we want to keep his commandments and do the things he said, so works are going to follow. We wanna take care of the poor. We wanna do the things Jesus said. So we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then the evidence that I have been born again are the works uh, that I end up doing. All right, so um, let me get back to that here, okay? So um, you are not, baptismal regeneration is just simply not true. If you were saved by baptism, it would be a work. Um, it would be not, it would be just like, it would be religious because baptism is religious. It would be some kind of religious work saving you, like going to church, like being baptized, like being circumcised. Um, people come up with their own ideas as to what you have to do to be saved. Um, within Catholicism, there's 
those people who believe that you got to keep the sacraments in order to be saved, again, works can't save you. It's by grace that you are saved, calling out upon the name of Jesus and having your life radically transformed. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, if you are new joining us here today, I'm really glad you're here. We hope that you are blessed. If you have a question, you can submit it to the comment section, write the word question out, and then read it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. I'm gonna go ahead and take a look at another question that we have previously prepared for us. Uh, if you have a question, then go ahead and write it out and submit it. Um, so this question uh, was submitted as a, as a comment online um, to a video. It says, a friend of mine attends a church that teaches God wants you rich. How should I respond? This is the prosperity movement. Uh, when the disciples asked Jesus about the last days, what are the last days going to be like? What will be the sign of your coming? Jesus said, first of all, beware that you are not deceived. The Bible tells us that in the last days, men are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and who will tell them what they want to hear instead of what the Bible has to say. And so um, there are many churches today that are teaching what people want to hear, that God wants you rich. The largest church in America teaches this. It doesn't teach sacrifice or, or giving up for God. It, it, it teaches God wants good for your life. God wants you blessed. God wants you happy. God wants you rich. Um, how should you respond? Well, I think maybe you would show them 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me see if I can find that really quick. Um, I think it's worth us taking a look at. So, um, let's see. Um, Let's go ahead. I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you and we'll read it. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, it says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed over disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, rivalry, um, yeah, right, um, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, corrupt mind, and destitute the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So how should you respond to a friend of yours who is attending a church that's teaching you that God wants you to be rich? Tell them to get out of it. Remove yourself from it. That's what it says here. From such, withdraw yourself. And then it goes on to say, for godliness, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts that drowned men in destruction and perdition. The word perdition means waste. And so the Bible clearly teaches us that there are going to be people who teach this. It's the doctrines of demons. I believe it's the last days. It's the last day doctrine. It may indeed, you know, the Bible says it gives us a list in Timothy. I don't know if it's first or second of what men in the last days are going to be like. They're going to be lovers of pleasure and lovers of themselves. Um, and it goes on to say they have a form of godliness, but it denies the power. I think the form of godliness for the for the the world religion that is embraced in the end is this prosperity gospel. God wants you rich. 
God wants only good things to happen to you. God doesn't want anything difficult to happen to you. And the Bible says, in this world, you will have trouble. With food and clothing, you should be content. Tell those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches. Um, but the Bible says, but to be willing to share. Uh, and so I think that this is one of the last days churches um, and it, it has a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God because you're living in those uh, difficult and hard things. Uh, you're li living in those difficult and hard days. All right, so thank you very much. I'm gonna go back here. And then we have a question here. Um, all right, so um, question. Jesus mentions Enoch being, being scripture. Why was the book of Enoch removed then? All right, MEO. Um, I'm not sure of the reference that you're talking about, Enoch being scripture. I don't think Jesus does. I think Jesus uh, Enoch is quoted in the book of Jude. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head where Enoch is mentioned by Jesus. Um, and I'm not sure that it isn't but I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, if you can, if, if any of you guys remember that, because sometimes you're telling me, just put a question in front of it and then give me the answer to that. Write down where Jesus said that Enoch was scripture. If Jesus said Enoch, you know, like, like the scriptures say, Enoch such and such and quoted it, which I don't, Jesus never did that. I'll guarantee you he never did that. He might've talked about Enoch, the fifth from Adam or whatever that is. I'm trying to remember that, but he doesn't talk about him being scripture, the book of Enoch being scripture. And in fact, we don't. Now, the book of Enoch was never removed. This is really important to understand. The, the, the Jewish Old Testament did not contain the book of Enoch. They rejected it because it doesn't have what the other books of the Bible have. And no one chose what the canon of scripture is they discovered what the canon of scripture is. And the book of Enoch, because it had been rejected by the Jews when, when the church got it, they eventually received it in its form. And before Dan Brown says it was the council, a certain council in 300 and whatever, and Constantine chose what books would be in the Bible, that's a lie. That's just not true. You're, that's a fantasy. That's a movie. It's not the truth. Um, we find the Bible and the 66 books that we have today being pulled together very early in church history and received by the church. So they accepted it. There was some discussion about whether or not James should be in the Bible or Revelation should be in the Bible, but the Apocrypha was added in by the Catholic Church later. It was not removed, it was added in later. Some of it backs up some Catholic doctrine and for whatever reason, and I don't know all of the reasons that the Apocrypha, which the word means hidden, have added it in, but I think that a few things are just not true in the question here. Jesus did not mention it as being scripture. It is quoted, but there are other books that are quoted in the Bible as well that are not scripture. Um, Paul quotes a philosopher in Acts chapter 17. That doesn't mean everything the philosopher said was right. And because quote, uh, Jude is quoted in the book, Jude quotes, um, Enoch, the book of Enoch, doesn't mean that everything in the book is right. And like I said, there are other um, books that are quoted as well. And so um, let me just take a look here and see if anybody had 
um, any idea where he's talking, where, where Jesus mentioned Enoch. I don't see that anyone has it here, um, all right? But the book of Enoch was never removed. It just was not identified as being scripture. All right, so thank you, Emil. I appreciate that. If you're new here and you're visiting with us, you can submit a question by writing uh, in the comment section, whatever your question is, and then we'll get to them as they come in. All right, um, you know, when we're talking about the book of Enoch here, I see it talking about the book of Enoch is heresy and contradicts the word of God. And I do believe there are certain things that are there that, that do do that. Um, however, there could be benefits to reading the books of Maccabees, uh, the um, uh, the book of Enoch. We don't read it as scripture. We read it in order to see what the mindset of a first century Christian was because they're much closer to the Bible and we might be able to get some insight that will help. All right, let's see um, if someone says here, Calvary Chapel, Fountain Hills, Jesus um, made statements that are similar to statements from Enoch not exactly the same. All right, so thank you very much, Calvary Chapel, Fountain Hills. I appreciate that. Um, I'm not familiar with what statements Jesus made that are similar to what the book of Enoch was. All right, I'd be willing to look at them, to look at the statement in the book of Enoch, and then to look at what Jesus had to say so we could talk about it. But I'm not gonna be able to talk about anything that is similar um, there. And if Calvary Chapel, Fountain Hills, if you could add um, that in, with what Jesus said that was similar. Um, and I'm trying to think if Jesus ever did bring up Enoch or not. All right, so let's just take a look at one more, um, one more uh, question that we have. Um, why um, do some Bible versions leave out some verses? So uh, there are, um, all right, so I'm, I'm just looking here in the comment section again. Um, so Calvary Chapel Fountain Hill says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. The elect shall uh, possess light, joy, and peace. They shall inherit the earth, Enoch 5, 7, and 6, and 9. So I'm going to take a picture of that comment. Hold on. Oh, I actually, well, I took a video, but video will work. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'll be able to take a look and look that up and hopefully answer that later on. So why do some versions leave out some verses? Um, why do some Bible verses leave out some verses? Uh, because they're taking the entirety of manuscripts. Um, there are certain Bible versions that come from a set of manuscripts that was already made early on. And this is King James and the New King James. And people believe, and this is what the King James Bible only people teach, the version only teach, that those are better and superior and some of the later findings in manuscripts are not. But books like the NIV, uh, versions like the NIV, the ESV, NASB, take all of the manuscripts together and determine whether or not something should be there or not. And so they will leave it out. For example, we know the account of the woman caught in the act of adultery was not in the original book of John where it's at. Doesn't mean it's not true, doesn't mean it's not scripture, doesn't mean it didn't happen. All we know is that it's not in the original manuscripts. And we can go back and you can look at the original manuscripts and you can see where they're at it. So you can make like a tree and scientists do this to look at things. And so they come to certain passages that maybe 
in certain uh, manuscripts that were written on the side, maybe added in a little bit later on. And so, in a study Bible, you'll always find footnotes that will tell you what manuscripts or there's the majority of manuscripts or what manuscripts that they believed in. This is not a negative for the church. It's a positive. It's a positive for us that we are able to have so many that look over these manuscripts and really pour into them. God did not give us the Bible by it just floating down from heaven in the form that we have it now. I can barely reach it. God didn't give us the Bible by just giving us the Bible in this form floating down from heaven. He gave us manuscripts that we searched and we studied to see whether or not those things, um, uh, so it could be compared and contrasted so that we could get back to what was said. Um, and I can answer more questions on the process that they use, but we are confident that God's word is true in Psalms 12, 6 and 7, when it says God's word are like pure gold and they, um, uh, God will preserve them from generation to generation. And that's through the process of manuscripts, which we have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 24,000 total manuscripts. That's a huge number that we can compare and contrast. And we are so confident that we are getting back to what the original writers wrote that we can say that God indeed did, um, that God did preserve his word, even as he said he would. And I believe that God did uh, through the many different manuscripts that are out there. Okay, so we have a question from Annika. This will be our last question for today. I really appreciate you guys. Um, if you have more questions while I'm answering this last one, you can write it down. Um, and then uh, I'll have this sent to me. Daniel will send this to me. And it's good to have you here with me, Daniel. Daniel's our moderator. Um, and he's going to send me this feed with all these comments in it. And so I'll be able to add it in a little bit later on. All right. So um, Annika says, what do people mean when they say that Jesus was a social justice warrior? And so there are those that believe that what they read in the scriptures is that Jesus is trying to just do social work. Social work would be taking care of the poor, taking care of the needy, um, reaching out to those who are handicapped, uh, those that have special needs, okay? Um, and so Jesus certainly encouraged us to, to help those who are poor, for sure. But Jesus did not bring a social gospel. It wasn't go out, it, we're, we're to love everybody, we're to do good to people, but we've got to receive him in order to be saved. So those that try to say that Jesus um, was involved, was a social justice warrior, are going to deny the basics of what the Bible says about the way we're saved and the way we're supposed to live. And they're just going to come to how we're supposed to treat each other and then say that that's all that Jesus was about when it's absolutely not true. Yeah, we learn how we're supposed to treat people. And, um, you know, it, you, you can try to remake Jesus in your own image, but you don't get to pick and choose what's there. So thanks, Annika. That's what Jesus meant when he said, um, that's what people mean when they say that Jesus is a social justice warrior. I will reject that. I believe that many, many things that people do in the social justice movement, Jesus talked about doing. And we want to be caring for those who are poor. We want to align ourselves with the humble. We want to feed those who are poor. We want to take care of widows and orphans because this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, James said. 
but not not social justice as just a social justice church. There are churches that don't preach the gospel, that don't don't teach the Bible. Uh, they are just out doing good works. And that's good. It's good to do good works, but it's not what the Bible is and it's not what the Bible says that we are supposed to live. All right. So thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure interacting with you guys. We will be back Saturday and we will have another Q&A there. We also have a service in two hours. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter three. We're going to be looking at casting off legalism and embracing the freedom that we have in Christ. Jesus said, we of all people are the most, Paul said, we of all people are the most free. Jesus said, who the son of man sets free is free indeed. And Jesus came that we would be free. We want to walk in that freedom. There are those that want to put us under bondage and back under law. And so Paul talks about this in the first eight verses of Philippians chapter three. That's what we will be covering tonight. So I look forward to covering that with you. All right, so I'm signing out now. God bless you guys. We will see you uh, later on. Stay close to Jesus. Keep loving him. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys next Saturday for our next Q&A. God bless you guys.